is the greatest privilege of my calling, to, to be able to year after year stand up here and declare that God has not given up on you. That is the message of Christmas. God has not given up on his creation. He is not distant. He's not remained far off. He is not in the heavens angry and uncaring. He has drawn near. He is God with us, Emmanuel, as the prophets and the angels declared. God, in, in what has to blow the mind if you think about it, has chosen to come in the form of an innocent, helpless child. He is incarnate. He is God, our Savior, our healer, and our friend in flesh. Now, this story, it should never get old. And it's my privilege every year to try to reveal it to all of us again in new and fresh ways, which I have to tell you is not always easy because you all know the story, right? And so this September, like every September, I began to reread and reponder the eternal truths of this story. I, I started in Genesis, and I, I found my way into the prophets and then to the story of Jesus' birth and his teachings to try to see where it is that the Spirit of God might be leaving, leading us as a community church to rediscover this Christmas season. And I was really having a hard time with it this year, just could not figure it out. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I came bouncing into our Tuesday staff meeting. He's going, I got it. I got it. I, I, I think it's a message the world needs this year, a message you and I need this year, more than any other year, at least that I can remember. Now, this message has always been there. I've heard it a thousand times, and so have you. But this year, it just, le- when I saw it, it leapt off the page. Who's ready for what God is going to declare to our community for, through Mendham Hills Community Church. Who's ready? Yeah. All right, that's half-hearted, but I'll take it. Half of you are ready. The other half are gone. I'll decide when I know what this message is, which I might do that too. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump back to Israel's great prophet, Isaiah, right? Now, Isaiah is what's known in the Bible as a major prophet. Does anybody know the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet in the Bible? Yeah. Major prophets wrote longer. When it comes to prophets, size mattered. And it's, it's more than just, right? It's just more pages than the minor prophets. And so since I don't want to be remembered as a minor preacher, settle in, kids. <laughs> About 700 years before Jesus comes to earth. A time today, if you just want to kind of t- try to equivalent that in your mind, Go back to, uh, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and then add like another 150 years or so, right? This prophet Isaiah, he lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period. Isaiah had two profound overarching messages that he kept prophesying out to the kings of Israel and Judah. First, what he kept telling them was that because of their rebellion against the covenant that they had with God, That if they did not stop, God was going to raise up rival nations, Assyria, Babylon, and these nations would come and conquer them and carry them off if they continued in their idolatry and their oppression of the poor. But he would always balance that message to the people and the kings with a combined message of hope that despite what God was about to allow to happen, God was still going to be faithful to his covenant promise to bring to Israel and the world through the line of King David to establish God's kingdom through a long-awaited Messiah. Now, you can see that at work right here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Check this out. Nevertheless, he had just been talking about the gloom and the doom of what's coming with the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But nevertheless, 
There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, now listen, he will honor Galilee. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's the prophecy. That's the promise to a nation, right, that's about to find itself under the boot of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Nevertheless, Isaiah promises them, there is a day coming when a son will be born. Uh, uh, and this son is going to go by several names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Can you tuck prince of peace away for a second? Now, fast forward 700 years. Dark night, quiet on a hillside in Galilee, and some shepherds were doing, well, you know what they were doing. What were the shepherds doing? They were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, there it is again, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. See, what's going on here is what Isaiah foresaw, these shepherds 700 years later actually saw. For them, this day was that day. It was the day because unto them a son actually was born and given, right? And these angels, they shared this description of the reign of the newborn king with what Isaiah said. He said he would be the prince of peace, and this multitude of heavenly hosts declares that because of his reign, there would be peace on earth and goodwill towards men, and that peace would never end. Get this now. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men forever. Ha! <laughs> I mean, come on. Has anybody flipped the news on lately? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Was there an expiration date on the prophecy? Did it run out, the promise? Because if this last year, if 2021 is any indicator, these prophets or that prophet and these angels are either sorely mistaken or they're lying. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you saw goodwill towards men? That's why this Christmas series this year ends in a question mark. I mean, I'm just keeping it real, right? The angels declared it, but we've got to question it. I mean, what a year. We can't agree to disagree on anything. Do you know how sensitive I have to be up here all the time? This is nuts, right? 
I mean, we, you can't make up the things we will now choose to fight about. Elections, masks, vaccines, justice, policing, crime, inflation, immigration, education. That's just in the last couple of weeks. You name it, we're beating the crud out of each other over it. We got fights in the courts, fights in the classroom, fights in the streets, fights in the stadiums, the parks, the plains. The Karen in all of us has now come out, right? There's something up. It wasn't always like this. I'm telling you it wasn't always like this. According to data from the FAA, airlines have reported around 3,000 instances of, quote, disruptive passengers this year, what they describe as a significant increase that started late in 2020. So it's happening in 2021. This is what's so interesting. The FAA never tracked this data in previous years because the numbers were always consistent. There was no need to look at it. It was always the same. But now, fights are becoming more frequent and more dangerous. Quote, we've never before seen aggression and violence on our planes like we have in the last five months. Listen to this. Already, reports of these incidents in less than five months are more than 60 times the amount in a typical year. And those are just the incidents reported. Goodwill towards men. <laughs> I mean, this, this study by, by the Pew Research Firm, this just came out in the last six weeks. They, they went out and they surveyed people in 17 countries in Europe, Asia, North America, and they asked about divisiveness in their country. Can anybody guess where we ranked? We're number one, baby. That's right, the good old US of A. Number one. Americans were the most likely to say their society was split along partisan, racial, and ethnic lines. The U.S. also reported more religious division than almost any other country surveyed. The U.S. was also one of five countries, this is great, and I know it's true, and so do you, in which more than half of the public said their fellow citizens can't even agree on basic facts. That's where we are. And yet, Isaiah prophesied that he should be called the Prince of Peace. The angels proclaim peace on earth and goodwill towards men forever. What happened? And this Christmas, after what I would describe as a year like no other, is it actually possible that, that the Prince of Peace is on his throne, but we've missed it? And, and maybe, just maybe, if as followers of his, which many of you would describe yourself as, as maybe we could once again begin to not just proclaim that peace, but experience what the heavenly host foresaw, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's the message this Christmas. That's what I proclaim to you. That's what I want you to shout in your homes, in your offices, in your streets. I'm telling you, it's still possible. Truth is that this message of Christmas about peace is something that you've heard, but you, like, like me, have not totally understood it. We missed it a little bit. See, here's what we think. We, we think we know what peace is. We think that peace is, in, in a sense, a how question, but it's not. Think about it, right? If I were going to ask you, uh, to, how would you find peace on earth? How would, we, how would we go about that on the world stage? I mean, if we look through like the American history book, right, we would go, well, peace is achieved through strength. And I said, if I were to say to you, okay, well, how do you have peace at home? Well, peace at home well, maybe you probably have to have, you know, enough money, savings, rainy day funds, because then you could have peace at mind. But peace, the message of Christmas, is actually not about a how. It's about a who. 
And it's about who that actually starts with you. Now, before I get to Dr. Susie, right, <laughs> let me get at this concept of peace. See, what it was that Isaiah foresaw and the angels proclaimed when the writers of the Bible saw Jesus' incarnation as bringing peace, they were not talking about what you and I think of when we think of peace. They were not saying that Jesus' arrival was going to mean the end of all conflicts. That's what we understand the word peace to mean. No more fighting. You ever have kids in the backseat of a car, right? It's like two cats in a sack. Stop your fighting, right? And that's what we think. If I could just stop the fighting, there would be peace. We pretend like that's the default position for humanity. If we could just stop the fighting, then we would have peace. So peace is the elimination of something. There are outside forces at work that are robbing me of my peace. If I could just have the right people around me or remove the wrong people around me and change my circumstances, then I would have peace. But that is not what the scriptures are teaching. The writers of the Bible actually see peace as something almost 180 degrees different. In fact, for the angels and the prophets, peace was not the subtraction of something that would then move you to your normalized state of peace, but it was the addition of the gift of something that had not been available before, that was not even possible before. Because remember, peace is not about a how, it's about a who, and it's about you. Now, let me show you what I mean. Before I do that, I have to tell you what the, the writers of the Bible wrote when they wrote the word peace. In the New Testament, what Luke wrote in Greek, right, was what the heavenly host declared, arene, arene on earth, arene on earth, goodwill towards men. That was the Greek word, arene. It's actually used 92 times in the New Testament, over and over and over. Jesus said quite famously, I could give you a couple, arene to you, arene I leave you. The Apostle Peter, some of you know, he goes to the house of Cornelius, right? And he goes in and he proclaims to Peter the gospel of Jesus. He says that Jesus' gospel is arene. You see, Jesus' gospel is not that if you believe, you go to heaven. The good news was arene has come. That was the good news. The good news was peace had come. Paul would often use the, these greetings in his letters to the church. He would always say, grace to you and arene from God. Sometimes he would write the God of arene. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. Put your thinking caps on. Arene, it turns out, is actually a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, and it's a Hebrew word that you've heard of. It's the word shalom. So in the New Testament, shalom is translated as arene. In the Old Testament, it's translated as shalom. When you read it in either the New Testament or the Old Testament, it says peace, right? See, when Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, he called him the prince of shalom. The angels were declaring to the shepherds, shalom on earth. Here's the problem. Translating shalom as peace in English is like, is like referring to Tiger Woods as a good golfer. See, Tiger Woods, I mean, it's true he's a good golfer, but Tiger Woods is a lot more than a good golfer. I'm not even a fan of Tiger Woods, but I would have to acknowledge that culturally, he is much more significant than merely a good golfer. I mean, yeah, he's a golfer, but he's, he's much more than that. Well, it's the same with Shalom and Arene. When we read it as peace, we read it as, oh, no more conflict. No, 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 it, 
Yeah, it means no more conflict, but it means way more than that. It doesn't just mean, shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Shalom points to the addition of something, more or better in the place of conflict, an addition, not a subtraction. The most basic meaning of shalom, the good news of Jesus, his gospel, is shalom means completeness or wholeness. You can see it used, it's used in the scriptures everywhere. It describes a stone one time. The stone is perfectly cut with no holes or cracks. That, that brick is shalom. It can be used to describe a wall, a completed wall with no gaps or missing brinks, uh, bricks. What shalom means, it's referring to something complex with lots of pieces that is in a state of completeness and wholeness, well-meshed. But it's not just inanimate objects that experience shalom. Because remember, I said peace, right, is not about a how, but a who, and it's about you. You were created to live in a state of wholeness, completedness, intermeshed. When King David, when he went out, when um, David, right before he takes down Goliath, his brothers are, are, are getting crushed out there. So David goes out and it says that he left his things with the keeper of supplies. He ran to the battle line and asked his brothers, quote, here's the translation, how they were. You know what that word is? How's your shalom? How you feeling right now, boys? Right? See, that's the core. I like how the Bible project puts it. The core idea of shalom is that life is complex. It's full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any one of these things gets out of alignment or is missing, your shalom breaks down and, and your life is no longer whole and it, it needs to be restored. That's what it means when you use shalom as a, ber- a verb. When you bring shalom to something, you are bringing completeness and wholeness back to it again. You are literally binding or joining together again that which had been separated or divided. In the Bible, when kings would, would make shalom with each other, it wouldn't mean that they would just stop fighting with each other, right? It meant that they would start working together for the benefit and the good of each kingdom. In your marriage, if you have shalom in your home, oh, how about that? I'm a poet and I didn't know it. But if you, had, if you had shalom in your home, right, that would not just mean, I mean, Joan and I cannot fight with each other. We're very good at it. We just ignore each other, right? That's not shalom. Shalom is the addition to something. It's not the stopping of conflict. It's the addition of something where suddenly we're working the way we were meant to work, right? Wholeness, completeness, union. It was the state of shalom that Israel was supposed to cultivate, but as Isaiah was warning them, they're not. And thus his prophecy is that there's a king that's coming that will, and he's going to bring shalom, and when when he brings this shalom, it will have no end. He is going to make right all that has been made wrong. He is going to heal all that's been made broken. He's going to bind together what's been torn apart. That's the message of Christmas, but It only makes sense to the degree you understand how desperately broken things are, how torn apart things are. Because you see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth, listen to this now, I'm telling you, you hear it in verse 1. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And into this disorder, what does God bring? Shalom. Out of disorder, God brings order and harmony. He creates day and night. He creates sea creature and land animal. He makes man and woman. 
And it was all over. God looks at it and declares, this is good. This is shalom. And by the way, in the kingdom to come, we'll all exist in shalom. Read Revelation. It's a long story of shalom, right? But God looks at it and goes, this is good. All of creation is in in shalom. Think about it. Man with God, right? God is walking with man. God is with man. He's dwelling with man in the garden. They're going for walks in the cool of the morning. Man is good with himself. He doesn't have that little voice in his head that keeps telling him, you know, you should really be ashamed of yourself. He was in good relationship, man with man, or in this case, man with woman, and man with creation. He was naming naming the animals. He's working the garden. It all existed once and will again in a state of shalom. Now, most of you know the story. When sin enters the garden, when man makes the conscious decision to rebel against God's goodwill and order and shalom, what happens? We get what we asked for, disorder, disunity, unraveling, brokenness, and you see it in those same four areas of creation. Man once walked with God in the cool of the morning in the garden. What does man do as soon as he, as soon as he sins? He hides from God. Shalom is broken between man and God. When man once walked around the garden naked and unashamed, what is the first thing he does when he sins? He covers himself up. He hides himself away. Right? Shalom is broken within and then, of course, you have Adam blaming Eve for the whole thing, right? It's that woman you gave me. It's her fault. Shalom's broken between the man and the woman, human and human. And then, finally, part of the curse God speaks concerning creation itself. Cursed is the ground. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. The end of shalom. In fact, just one generation later, Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. The fall was fast and furious and deep. Here's my premise this Advent season morning. All these years, it's not happiness that you've actually been looking for. This is why you can't find it. What does every parent say? I just want my kids to be. You don't. You know what you want for them? Shalom. You want peace, but even more than peace. See, I think... think, Each of us is looking for it because we were created for it. We were created to live that way, but we experienced so little of it. Here's what I would posture quickly about the happiest person you know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the happiest person you know. Not the richest, not the most successful, not the most popular, the happiest. What I, I would bet when you look at their lives is that you would live, you would see that they live in some relative state of shalom. First, the happiest person you likely know is likely happy with themselves. They don't feel the need to constantly prove themselves or keep up with the Joneses. They don't have to pose or posture or hide to make themselves look a certain way or feel a certain way about themselves. They're comfortable in their own skin. They're not pretending to be something they're not. They love and accept who they actually are. Do you know anybody like that? I know a couple people, not a lot but I'd like to be that way. Because if you do know somebody like that, right? If you do know somebody like that, there's something else about people who live like this. People who, who have shalom are not only at peace within, with themselves, they're at peace with others. My guess would be if you looked at their lives, there's not just like a string of broken relationships in a rearview mirror. They're not angry with people. They're not bitter or upset. They're not They're not blaming others for what's happened to them. I mean, here's a novel idea in 2021, right? Not blaming others for your circumstances. 
They take responsibility for their junk. They forgive others what they, for what they've done. They're not wishing bad karma on anyone or trying to scheme about how to get even. Do you know anybody like that? That could just let things go. They're at peace with themselves. They have an inner peace, and it works its way out into other relationships. And lastly, and this is what I'm going to focus on just for a couple minutes at the end here, people who find what Christmas is all about, who live in the promised kingdom of shalom that Jesus came to usher in, those same people are almost always at peace with God. They have a spiritual sense about them that includes not just some kind of random spirituality or crystals or tarot cards or psychics or astrology, the kind of people I'm talking about, they usually walk in some kind of personal relationship with God. They, they seem to know Him. They seem to be able to trust Him. They feel confident in who He is and what He's going to do. With them, God isn't distant or far off or fearful, but He's close and personal and intimate, and they just seem to know it and walk with Him. Don't you see this is the story of Christmas. It's the story of the bringing. Actually, it's the story of the restoring of shalom. Because you see, peace is not about a how. It's about a who, and it's about you. Isaiah foresaw it, and the angels, the multitude of the heavenly host, declared it. Did you know Jesus explained it? Super interesting. It, once you start to understand what's going on in shalom in the scriptures, it's everywhere, right? I mean, think about this one, right? You, some of you know the story. There, there's a, a teacher of the law that comes up to Jesus and is trying to trick him up, right? And so he asks Jesus, well, let, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, if you think about the, the, the New Testament, right? The four gospels, Paul's letters to the churches, what are they mostly talking about? How to have peace with God, how to have peace with others, and how to have peace within. You can summarize the New Testament under all those things. Here's the key, though. Shalom only begins with, it's only made possible to the extent that we find peace or shalom with God. Now, getting back to what I was saying about Matthew and Luke, they record this scene where this teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and he's trying to trick him. Some of you know the story. And he asks him, uh, teacher, we have hundreds and hundreds of laws. Which of them is the greatest? Here's what Jesus said to him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what is Jesus saying to him? Well, he tells him the most important commandment is about God. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and the mind. Well, that kind of seems that you would be at peace with God. You would be in some kind of state of shalom with God in order for that to happen, right? Jesus is going, you want the greatest commandment? Live in shalom with God. But then he goes on. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because the restoration to shalom doesn't end with you and God. It begins with God because once I've found peace with God, right? Once I'm in right relationship to Him, then loving myself and loving others, it seems like that actually could be possible. This is what Jesus came to bring. Jesus is explaining what Isaiah saw and the angel saying. The most important thing to Jesus, the reason he came, is to restore shalom with God, with others, and with you. It's about who, and it's about you. That's the good news. So if the good news of Christmas is that shalom is possible, this state we're all trying to experience and live in, if it starts with having shalom with God, well then the next question that flows out of it quite naturally is what? How can I have that? How, how 
can I get peace with God? Well, our ways, peace on earth, right? You get that through peace by strength. Peace, with, peace within, you get that by changing circumstances. Peace with God, well, you get that by pleasing God, by keeping all the commandments, by doing more good things than bad things. That's the natural question, and that's the natural answer we would give, but it's not the right answer because his ways are not our ways. Because I told you, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, shalom, is not about a how. It's not about a how. It's about a who, and it's about you. You with God, you with others, and you with yourself. God's plan is not a peace plan. God's plan is a peacemaker, a prince of peace. Here's how Paul explained it to the church in Rome. He said, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. It's about a who. He is our peace. It's not a plan. It's not a how. It's a who. And what did this who do? Who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. That's not how you come to God. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making shalom. Thus making shalom. And in one body to reconcile, you're going to hear that over and over again, because what does reconcile mean? It means to put back together again what's been torn apart. And to reconcile, right, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached shalom to you who were far away and shalom to those who were near. It's everywhere. Paul says, Jesus is our peace. He's our shalom. And through the cross, for, for he's brought warring people together, but not just peace people. He goes on, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, there it is again, to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you understand what God is up to in Christmas? Now, this is a strong word. Enemies. While we were enemies of God. I mean, how many of you walking in this morning said, yes, that's me. I'm an enemy of God. Frankly, it's, I mean, it's a little offensive. Some of you might not be here this morning because you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe your family dragged you in. The pretty girl that you met at the laundromat last night invited you, or it's Christmas time and, you know, it's time to go back to church. And here you've got the preacher telling you you're an enemy of God. But it's not the preacher, it's Paul. And you might say, how, I'm not an enemy of God. An enemy of God? I mean, what did I do to be his enemy? Well, Paul explained it to the Colossians, speaking of Jesus. He said, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him, here it comes again, to reconcile, put back together to himself all things, whether things on heaven or earth or things in heaven, right? So the creation's all going to be restored to shalom. By making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. And here comes the why. Because of your evil behavior. We are enemies of God because, in our, because of our minds, because of our thoughts, and because of our evil behavior. We were enemies of God because of this sin issue that each of us have. 
The scriptures teach that once sin gets conceived, right, in the brain, in the mind, it gets conceived there, it works its way out in behavior. Why does God, why does God hate sin so much that he would call us his enemies? Why, why would it would literally make us in our natural states enemies of God? Because God hates what sin is doing to his children and his creation. I love my kids so much. I mean so much. Like literally. I love my kids so much. And if you did something to them, we are no longer friends. Do you get that? That's what sin is doing. It's doing it to you. And then as it comes through you, you're doing it to others. This is our problem with God, what sin is doing to us and what it's doing to others. But, I love what Paul says, Paul says, but despite the fact that you're messing with his kids, he's now, and here it is again, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God, despite the fact that we are enemies in our minds and our behavior, he has chosen to reconcile us to himself. God, don't get this wrong. This is what Christmas is about. God made the first move. He made the first move towards you in peace. God has extended to you this Christmas, and every Christmas, turns out, this isn't mistletoe. Don't let anybody trick you in the foyer later. <laughs> See, now I shouldn't have said that because I'm going to get in trouble. Everybody... <laughs> this is an olive branch. That's a gift from Joan and I where we cut up 300 of them last night to hand out to you today. <laughs> this is an olive branch. God extends to every single human being that has ever lived on Christmas, he extends an olive branch. We broke peace. We broke shalom. But God still extends to us the branch of shalom. That's why I'm giving it to you this morning. I want you to put this somewhere. We're going to talk about this olive branch every week. Right? Next week, we're going to talk about how you extend it to yourself. The week after that, we're going to talk about how you extend it to, your, to, to others. But today, I'm telling you that God has extended to you this Christmas an olive branch. It is his offering of peace. Why an olive branch? Well, in Genesis chapter 8, some of you know, Noah, right? He's, the waters are receding, and he sends out a dove, and a dove comes back, and a dove comes back with an olive leaf in his beak. And so Noah understood that there was now going to be peace again with God. And from that moment on, the olive leaf, it, it, it is meant, it, it's the extension of the olive branch has represented an offering of peace. If you look at the United Nations, they have an olive leaf on their symbol. We use that term, I'm going to extend an olive leaf to you. This isn't our idea. This is the story of Christmas. God wants to extend to you and to all people an olive branch. He's put it out and said, I offer you shalom again. That's what Jesus is doing today, right now, to you. How? This is so fascinating. The one who said Jesus would be the Prince of Peace, Isaiah, he went on to say this. We read it at Easter time, but it's a Christmas story. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. By Jesus being broken, we've been made whole. It's everywhere in Scripture. An olive leaf came back to Noah on an ark, and the Prince of Peace rides into Jeru Shalom, 
for the punishment that I just read you about, the punishment that would bring peace. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem to take on the punishment that would bring us shalom, where does Jesus go to pray? The Mount of Olives. And where on a Mount of Olives does Jesus go to pray? In an olive garden. And he kneels down and he prays under a canopy of olives and he offers himself as an olive branch for me and for you. This is the story of Christmas. It's the promise of Christmas. And I'm here to tell you, I know there's a question mark up there, but I'm here to tell you it's still possible. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men is still possible, but it has to start with peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. It's not about a how, it's about a who, and it's about you. This Christmas, an olive branch has been offered to you. A nail-pierced hand has been extended to you. And all you have to do, all you have to do is believe. Believe. And you'll find peace with God and intimacy and relationship and wholeness and newness and reconciliation. Next week, we're going to look at finding peace with ourselves. But this week, find a home for your olive branch. Make it a, put it on your dashboard. Stick it in your Christmas tree. Pretend it's an olive tree that looks at you every morning. And remember that's what's been offered to you this Christmas. Shalom. Let's stand and close this.